0: This episode of the Deep South Dharma podcast is dedicated to the memory of Byron Ray Simpson, who died on November 15, 2019. Hello, this is Christy Bates of Oxford, Mississippi. Welcome to this episode of the Deep South Dharma podcast. The topic this week... We Don't Have Time for Your Low Self-Esteem is particularly inspired by many discussions and the encouragement of my much-loved friend Byron Simpson. Although he never said exactly those words to me, that was sometimes the subtext of what he was saying to me. Today's episode is also inspired in response to a question that came up in our Wednesday Night Book Study this week, so I hope you find it useful. You can get more information on the book study and the link to join us via Zoom at deepsouthdharma.org. There, you can also learn of other things going on in our community and subscribe for the occasional update. A way to get more frequent reminders is to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash deepsouthdharma. If this week's particular topic turns out to be meaningful or relatable to you, consider joining me and my Dharma sister Maureen Hall in Hendersonville, North Carolina, a couple of weeks from now. We'll be teaching Training the Heart, Lifting Your Voice from Thursday evening, December 5th, to Sunday morning, December 8th at Heartwood Refuge and Retreat Center in Hendersonville. In case you're wondering, you don't have to be Buddhist to attend enjoy or benefit from this retreat it is appropriate for beginning or experienced meditators and it is offered for anyone who would like to strengthen their voice to create what they want to see in the world for details and registration visit heartwoodrefuge.org lastly i'll mention for those who have mentioned that they want to be able to support this podcast and its work in the world you can actually do that in a couple of ways Financially, which is what some of you have been asking me about, you can do that here at Anchor by signing up to offer a monthly donation. Anchor does not save your information and those donations, large or small, uh, will benefit this podcast by allowing me to spend the time um, and maybe to spend more time to create it. Secondly, you can be a great supporter-listener just by leaving your comments, questions, or discussion points via voicemail at anchor.com slash deepsouthdharma. Be sure to let me know in your message if it's okay to use your voice in a future episode, in case that comes up. Thanks for your interest in supporting this project, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode, We Don't Have Time for Your Low Self-Esteem. The last few times that I've been privileged to be on retreat with my teacher, Venerable Panyawati, she has spoken of the need to take good action in the world with as much energy and enthusiasm as those who are doing harm pursue their projects. She highlights that too often the people that seek to do good are timid in doing it. This has reminded me that Tara Brock had a great talk several years ago in which she explored how ego deflation is typically received as more socially acceptable than ego inflation, even though, as human beings, we have all likely experienced both ends of that spectrum, whether we outwardly show both ends of it or not. Although some of us may not think of Dharma practice as something that can strengthen us to move away from timidity or away from ego deflation, I think the Buddha's story of finding the third path that was neither self-indulgent nor self-mortifying shows us otherwise. So this brings me to the question that came up at Wednesday night book study this past week. One of our regular group members is a psychotherapist, as am I, and was sharing her curiosity, interest, and tension. She is learning that freedom from suffering involves the realization of anatta, Translated as not self or selflessness, or in the book we're studying right now, translated as voidness. She is both open to this and confused because her life's work, as she has understood it up to now, has been about helping people live from their most authentic experience of self, what she refers to as essence. So, this talk is partly about helping us sort our terms, and we may find we're not as far off as we think. There are two main things that I want to help make clear. The first is, when the Buddha used the word self, he was using it in a particular way, a way in which most people intuitively use that word, but maybe don't realize what they're saying. Our sense of self is a perceptual illusion created by sensory experience of contact through our six senses, those five that seem to be external, and the sixth our capacity for thought, which appears to be internal. From that contact, there is feeling that arises and a perception of what's happening based on memories about previous contact and feeling experiences. Intentions for response arise and are called formations. As a result, there is the experience of sense consciousness. All of this happens so rapidly and constantly that we get the illusion of a constant self until we do the 10-year picture challenge on Facebook where we see that we have not stayed the same. When the Buddha spoke of selflessness, he was stating that there is not something of a person or belonging to a person that is in control of those five aggregates of contact, feeling, perception, formation, sense consciousness, nor is there anything in us that is able to bend those aggregates to our will. We may close our eyes to avoid visual contact or cover our ears to avoid sounds, for example, but these are very elementary stopgaps. They don't show us being in charge of our sensory experience. In fact, our need to avoid certain kinds of contact, such as in taking the five precepts, is exactly something we do because contact with certain things leads to all the rest of these aggregates of clinging, creating suffering for ourselves and others. If we had a self or were a self in the way that the Buddha was using that word, there would be no need to follow precepts or any other wisdom teaching because we could take action of any kind without consequence. But in fact, every form of contact we meet, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, and every action we take in response, leads to results whether we like that or not. So we find that rather than imagining an independent, separate self, we have to recognize that we really are just part of a system where one thing leads to another. Which leads me to the other main idea I want to offer, which may already be clearer by now. The recognition of anatta, of selflessness, does not mean that we don't experience a sense of self. But having a sense of self is not a self. In fact, that's exactly the problem, that there is this sense of a self which suffers because there is not one. That sense of self is like all other conditioned phenomena, not reliable or permanent, not ultimately satisfying. This is what sends people looking for answers, whether they look to teachers or therapists, usually after they've looked in a million distractions and compulsions to lend themselves some sense of permanence. When we seek to help people, it's actually not that we're trying to help them find their true self. It is that we are working to help them experience their sense of themselves as functioning, giving, receiving aspects of nature. When we come into contemplative practice and begin to see things as they actually are, we come to see ourselves as aspects of nature in an interdependent system. In fact, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sylvia Burstein, and other Buddhist and contemplative Christian teachers use words like interbeing or interdependence rather than speaking of selflessness, to make that clear. In the Christian New Testament, for example, people are encouraged to see themselves as parts of one body, with the recognition that all must play their part, not crowding out the other parts, but also Not shrinking and failing to give what they're supposed to give if the body is to be healthy. My friend who helps her clients discover and live from essence is onto something. And this may sound like I'm playing with semantics, but the issue is she is helping people live in harmony with essence, not their essence, but essence, as in nature. The Eightfold Path leads away from suffering, not because it brings us into our nature, not some individual nature, but because it brings us into harmony with capital N nature, with reality. Reality where, as Sharon Salzberg writes in her book, Faith, deciduous trees lose their leaves in winter, change occurs despite our efforts to stop it, Unwelcome thoughts arise unbidden in our minds no matter what we will. If I tell lies, my mind will be filled with uncertainty and fear. It would be beyond me to count how many people I've worked with in treatment settings, meditation groups, counseling rooms, and in my own personal life who were feuding with life because things don't stay the same, especially relationships with other people. Numerous people over the years have shared their difficulty with allowing themselves to open up to the connection and love of people around them, many literally raising their voices in protest. Nobody stays, they say. But if we can let go our clinging to ideas of us having a permanent self or others having a permanent self, we can see that everything in nature is just like this. If we're healthy, we we don't refuse to eat lunch in protest just because we know we're going to get hungry again for dinner. And if we're healthy, we don't refuse to allow the love of other people to ease our pain or loneliness just because people are like all of nature, ever-changing, not permanently satisfying, and not under our control. So back to the issue of what is called ego deflation. Where ego inflation is usually commonly understood as the conceit of a sense of oneself as controlling more than you are, ego deflation can be seen as the conceit of viewing oneself as unable to make any difference at all. Neither of these are realistic. Taking either egoic activity to be self, excuse me, Taking either egoic activity, inflation or deflation, to be self is considered conceit in the Dharma use of that word. In our culture, ego deflation may be socially acceptable, but that doesn't make it any less conceited, meaning it doesn't make it any more real. A therapist, teacher, or spiritual friend can help someone find that middle way between the conceit of thinking she's controlling more than she really is, or the conceit of thinking she's affecting less than she really is. In the process, that person is learning that actions bring results, even in a world where not everything is under our control. The more she becomes interested in what actions and results are occurring, and how to respond to situations with skillful mental, verbal, and behaviors that lead to desired results, the more she is freed from preoccupation with being this or that kind of self, and therefore freed from suffering. So it is an interesting paradox that in working with and coming to understand this truth of not-self, of anatta, of our need to function as just part of nature with a willingness to release our personal preferences. Then our sense of self becomes more enjoyable. We actually gain a sense of self-respect, oddly enough, a sense of confidence and support for bringing into the world whatever aspects of life naturally come through us, and we are able to do it with energy and enthusiasm. Let's just give ourselves a minute to let that settle.